Chapter 9, Part 3 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 9, Part 3 Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. THE MAIN DOCTRINAL PROBLEMS What is the meaning of religion? For the type of theology which finds the content of doctrine in an authorized system, the primary question must be as to the validity of this authority. Thus the authenticity of Scripture must be established by orthodox theology before one is scientifically justified in deriving doctrines from Scripture. If, however, we regard doctrines as the creations of religious thinking for the purpose of interpreting religious experience, the first task of the theologian must be to inquire concerning the nature of religious experience. This approach to the study of theology was initiated over a century ago by Schleiermacher, whose famous Discourses on Religion are today as stimulating and suggestive as anything which one may read on the subject of religion. The student of modern theology should realize that his primary task is to understand the vital nature and function of religion. If interest is once aroused in this direct subject matter, many of the formal topics of theological controversy, such as discussions concerning the exact location of authority, cease to be of importance. One is thus free to address himself to the immediate problems of our real religious life. Fortunately, the student of theology today may avail himself of numerous admirable studies of the nature and function of religion. It is true that these investigations are usually made in the realm of non-Christian religions, for it has been possible to employ the methods of scientific inquiry here without encountering theological prejudice. There is, at all events, a certain advantage in looking at the field of religion objectively in realms where personal emotion does not play so large a part. When one has learned to appreciate the significance of historical evolution in the case of other religions, one will have received a training which is invaluable in overcoming the dogmatic attitude in the case of Christianity. The study of the nature of religion should by all means include the reading of the utterances of religious souls in the form of prayers, meditations, appeals to God, exhortations to men, and the like. No reading of a second-hand account of a religion can furnish the direct impression of its power which comes from the original utterances of a devout soul. Such a book as James' Varieties of Religious Experience shows a method by which one may recover the inner meaning of religion. If one comes to appreciate the intense reality of such aspirations and struggles as find expression in utterances of personal religious conviction, one will be preserved from the mistake of attempting to deal with doctrines in an external, formal fashion. Religion as a Problem of Cosmic Adjustment Religion is an experience of vital unity with the great forces in environment upon which life is ultimately dependent. It brings the most significant enlargement of experience. It is this enrichment of life which is important. Doctrines and rituals are means to this end, the doctrines of religion vary with varying conceptions of the nature of our environment. Where animism prevails, religion will take the form of propitiating a host of spirits. Where environment is philosophically conceived, 
religion takes the form of a mystic understanding of the significance of one's unity with the ultimate reality. To feel the wonder and the mystery of this experience of cosmic adjustment is essential if one is to interpret religion aright. When theology becomes exclusively devoted to doctrines as such, it becomes dry and formal. Doctrines must always be viewed as means of interpreting the attempt of man to find a sense of vital unity between his life and the power which works unseen in the world upon which man is dependent. Let the student always remember that the real test of value in a theology is not so much its logical completeness, or its philosophical consistency, as its ability to furnish ideas and interpretations which enable men to realize the experience of satisfactory adjustment to the cosmic reality on which they are dependent. Now, men cannot employ in their religious quest cosmic ideas which are scientifically absurd. When one has come to abandon animism, a theology which proclaims the necessity of dealing with spirits and devils is impossible. The theology of the Bible employs some cosmic ideas which we today have outgrown. To continue to embody these ideas in a modern theology means to make such a theology useless for the religious life of all who do not hold a pre-scientific conception of the world. The student must seek to express the vital relations of religious experience in such a way as to enable men to pursue the religious quest in the environment which is real to them. For example, before entering upon a discussion of the problem of miracles, one should ask whether the idea of miracle is one which we actually employ in our thought of the activities of the universe. If we cannot invoke the aid of miracles today, modern religion will ignore miracles and will lay primary stress on those aspects of cosmic reality which are active factors in our life. The student should constantly remember that the purpose of theology is not to discuss scholastic questions and any question which has no immediate relation to our life problems is scholastic, but rather to furnish conceptions which are helpful in establishing vital relations with the unseen forces of the universe. Doctrines which do not furnish this help are worse than useless. They are burdens which hamper and discourage men. A modern theology must face the problem of finding a rightful home for the spiritual aspirations of the soul in the universe which we moderns know. The Social and Ethical Significance of Religion If cosmic forces are believed to be capricious, religion will be full of fear and superstition. If these cosmic forces can be believed to be subject to an ethical purpose, religion itself becomes ethical in content. This ethical emphasis is one of the striking characteristics of Christianity. If we can feel assured that the social and ethical values which we most prize in our earthly life are sustained by the cosmic order, we have a religion which is ethically satisfactory. Christian theology has been conspicuously successful in harmonizing the ethical and the cosmic aspects of spiritual life. Indeed, so completely has it laid emphasis on moral conceptions that it is constantly in danger of being conceived solely in terms of ethics. Important as is this moral emphasis, the student should not forget the fundamental problem of our cosmic welfare. Religion brings to the moral endeavors of man the reinforcement of a cosmic faith. Christianity insists on both the cosmic and the ethical aspects of religious experience. The unfortunate consequence of allowing either of these elements to be sacrificed may be observed in Hinduism, where social aspirations have been eliminated by a highly mystical type of religious speculation, and in Confucianism, where ethics has found no adequate cosmic support, 
and hence has been supplanted by superstitions with a cosmic appeal. The task of Christian theology is to bring out the implications of its unified cosmic ethical ideals. The Christian Doctrine of God Christian theology has summed up the content of religious faith in its doctrine that man's fate in the universe is in the control of a morally perfect God, who shapes events according to the demands of absolute righteousness. Thus, one's happy adjustment to the forces of the universe involves moral fidelity, and, on the other hand, one's moral efforts have cosmic significance. The New Cosmic Consciousness the doctrine of God has been traditionally expressed in terms derived from a conception of the universe which modern science has modified. God was thought of as a transcendent sovereign, whose decrees must be obeyed by all nature. These decrees took the form of laws of nature, which might at any time be suspended if the purposes of the sovereign demanded a miracle. Man's religious history depended upon a series of dispensations, the last and highest of which was introduced by Christ. Special providences might be expected in human experience. It was believed that this world is eventually to be brought to a sudden end by a cosmic catastrophe deliberately brought about by the divine will. God was thus pictured in anthropomorphic terms, and his relation to the world and to man was represented as a matter determined only by his sovereign will. Today we face a universe of unimaginable extent in space and in time. We explain its structure and its behavior in terms of imminent forces rather than by reference to an anthropomorphic will. No longer do we seek the aid of personal cosmic spirits in practical life. Exorcism, which was so prominent a function of early Christian activity, no longer exists among us. Science is everywhere using impersonal ideas in explaining the universe. The anthropomorphism of former days is inapplicable to our present situation. In response to this new cosmic consciousness, many of the former characteristics of the doctrine of God have vanished or have been radically modified. The Calvinistic doctrine of decrees is becoming a theological curiosity. The idea of creation has been merged into the vaguer conception of evolution, where the exact extent of the divine activity is uncertain. Miracles are now problems rather than undoubted realities. The conception of God is thus undergoing a reconstruction in response to the pressure of the new cosmic ideas. In this reconstruction, men are likely to become bewildered. It will be helpful if the student can keep in mind one or two significant aspects of the theological problem which deserve a special mention. The religious problem distinguished from the metaphysical problem. It is confusing to find the word God employed in two very different senses. It is used by philosophers to indicate the metaphysical ultimate, and it is used by religious men to signify the spiritual life with which man may have personal communion. The history of religion shows that the gods of religious faith are not necessarily identical with the cosmic ultimate. Indeed, it is quite possible to have a religion in which the object of worship is a spirit working within the cosmos somewhat as man works within it. Practical religion demands a god who will actually help man in his life. God must be good in the sense that he takes sides against the evil in the world. Now, philosophy is concerned to discover a metaphysical ultimate which will include in its higher unity all the disparate aspects of the world. The God of the philosopher must include all aspects of reality, both what we call good and what we call bad. This metaphysical ultimate thus becomes too remote to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. 
The problem of evil is solved by showing a metaphysical way of transmuting supposed evil into actual good. But practical religion longs for a God who will take sides against evil and ensure the victory of the good. In the interests of practical religion, much recent theology has attempted to push the metaphysical problem into the background. The Reachlian theology insisted on banishing all metaphysics from religious doctrine, just because of the colorless character of the god of philosophical speculation. Professor James, with his keen sensitiveness to the practical exigencies of life, suggested a pluralistic universe in which God should be conceived as a particular being alongside of other beings. On the other hand, men like Professor Royce attempt to introduce into the conception of the philosophical absolute a real sympathy with finite occurrences. These movements are indications of the practical emphasis of religion, and their significance should be appreciated by the Christian theologian. Some Questions Concerning the Nature of God The construction of a doctrine of God should always be guided by the religious interest. Religion is concerned to affirm the possibility of a vital spiritual relationship in which the soul of man feels that it has a rightful home in the universe. The traditional doctrines concerning God should be critically examined, first in order to see how they grew up in response to the demand for a vehicle of thought adequate to interpret the full significance of religious experience, and secondly in order to ask whether these doctrines are still capable of promoting our worship. These practical inquiries will prevent one from going astray into fields of metaphysical speculation which are religiously barren. For example, instead of regarding the doctrine of the Trinity as a theological metaphysical puzzle to be solved by some sort of acute logic, the student should ask what function the doctrine served in the religious faith of the age in which it was wrought out. What were the problems of that time which led men to feel such concern over the matter? A study of the doctrine in this historical fashion will disclose certain presuppositions and certain religious ideas of the third century which demanded the discussion of the nature of God in terms of essence. But do our presuppositions today, and our religious problems, lead us to be interested in the definition of the divine essence? Only after this has been determined can we know the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity for modern faith. Most polemic discussions of today are theologically useless just because they do not raise this fundamental question. In particular, the student should remember that our inherited doctrine of God was formulated under the influence of political ideas which have been modified in important ways in modern times. The phrase, the sovereignty of God, harks back to the days of belief in the divine right of kings. But today we believe in a democratic form of government which allows citizens to call rulers to account. If criticism is a valuable moral asset in our political life, can we exclude it from religious thinking? May we not demand that God shall be required to receive the moral approval of men? This spirit of democracy, with its insistence on the rights of men, is responsible for the current protests against such ideas as that God has a right to elect some to salvation and to pass others by, or that he has a right to insist on some rigid plan of salvation purely because he has chosen this rather than any other plan or that he forbids men to apply critical tests to the Bible. Men who believe in democracy insist on worshipping a God whose excellence is to be found not in an aristocratic sovereignty, but rather in a self-sacrificing identification of himself with his children in their endeavors after righteousness. The immanence of God is thus a leading conception of modern theology. But religiously this immanence does not mean mere essential pantheism. 
this would be a metaphysical rather than a religious conception. It means rather the thought of God as the untiring co-worker with men, always dynamically present in their spiritual endeavors. It is evident that the language of traditional theology, taken, as it is, largely from a political philosophy which we have outgrown, is not suitable to bring out the full meaning of modern religious faith. The constructive work of theology must be in the direction of discovering ideas which will reinforce our actual religious experience in a democratic world. This problem, unfortunately, has not yet been generally grasped by the theologians. Most current discussions, recognizing that there are difficulties in the way of holding the older conception of God, seek to meet these difficulties by resorting to modern philosophy as an aid to reconstruction. Theology, thus, is diverted into a consideration of the metaphysical rather than the religious problem. Only a persistent determination to base critical reconstruction on the actual demands of religious faith can give the insight which is needed for the construction of a theology as contrasted with the philosophy of religion. The latter is essential, but it cannot serve as the working faith of a worshipping community. Moreover, insofar as the doctrine of God has been philosophically interpreted, it has embodied the metaphysics of the ancient Greek world. But modern philosophy has engaged in radical criticism of this metaphysics. Whereas Platonism sought to define God so as to remove him completely from the changes and accidents of our finite world, thus making transcendence of primary importance, modern philosophy is employing dynamic and evolutionary conceptions, thus involving God in the movement of the universe. Thus, the influence of philosophy as well as that of political thinking leads away from the fundamental categories of the older conception of God. A Vital Faith During Theological Reconstruction If the criticism of traditional theology is inspired by the desire to make doctrine more directly and efficiently serviceable in the promotion of the religious life, the process of criticism itself comes to have a religious meaning. Even if one has not yet found an adequate conception of God, one can feel the enrichment of life which comes from living and thinking and aspiring in relation to the worshipful aspects of environment. Faith may thus actually flourish during a period of intellectual doubt and questioning. By relating doctrines to the religious needs of men, one centers attention on the primary reality of the quest of men after God. So long as this quest is real and earnest, one's discussion of theology will always be vital and will always serve as a practical basis for prayer and for faith, whether one has reached satisfactory doctrinal statements or not. Perhaps no greater service could be rendered today than to persuade men of the positive significance of a questioning faith. It may be religiously more fruitful than the kind of faith which believes itself to be in possession of final doctrines. Such a faith is contributing to the better doctrines of the future. What do we mean by salvation? The need of keeping actual religious experience and its demands constantly in mind becomes especially evident in treating the doctrine of salvation. If one begins with an a priori conception of the plan of salvation, one is certain to find oneself dealing with abstractions. The traditional soteriology presupposed the historicity of Adam's fall, and started from the assumption that mankind needs to be saved primarily from the taint inherited from Adam. But modern anthropology has discredited this way of determining the nature of man and of sin. Moreover, the traditional doctrine of atonement embodied conceptions of penalty and of satisfaction which are being abandoned in modern criminology and penology. 
we cannot attribute to God a method of dealing with delinquency which would be condemned if practiced in our courts of justice. For example, to insist dogmatically, as an a priori principle, that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin, is both foolish and futile in an age which has abandoned the conception of bloody sacrifice and which is loudly demanding the abolition of capital punishment. To talk emotionally about sin in the abstract without any adequate psychological analysis of moral consciousness means to encourage artificiality in religion. The student must, if he is to work out in this realm convictions with moral power, rigidly compel himself to abandon the method of mere rhetorical exposition of traditional ideas, adopting instead the method of honestly asking what the evils of our life are and how we may hope for deliverance from their bondage. The Need of a Broader Conception of Salvation Men need to be saved from mental perplexity and despair as truly as they need to be saved from sin. Many pastors and teachers deal with doubt as if it necessarily involved moral delinquency. Fortunately, we are coming to see that much of the doubt of our day is due to a fine sense of personal honor in dealing with religious beliefs, involving the willingness to endure suffering if need be, rather than be guilty of the slightest falsehood in reference to religious truths. There are hosts of well-intentioned persons today whose religious life has been made uncertain because of honest doubt induced by modern education. Such persons can no longer think in terms of the traditional creeds. They live consciously in relation to the complex world of modern scientific thought, rather than in relation to the cosmos depicted in the Bible. With the discrediting of the older doctrines, they often suffer spiritual agonies. To call this typical religious need of our day sin is hopelessly to misunderstand the problem of salvation in such instances. To be saved here means to find new ideas which may both express the honest convictions of one who lives in the modern world and lift one into the consciousness of communion with God. Only an inductive study of this characteristic experience of religious doubt can furnish one with data upon which to construct a theory of salvation. The Problem of Sin In dealing with the conception of sin, it is imperative likewise to use the inductive method. Too often it has been taken for granted that the experience of Paul, or Augustine, or Luther is typical. Can this experience be universalized? Is it to be expected that every soul will pass through so dramatic a crisis? Theologically, sin has been measured not so much with reference to the experience of the individual as against the infinity of God. If this interpretation be too logically carried out, there is danger that God will seem to be less charitable than good men, and the moral value of the interpretation is thus lost. Let the student ask empirically the question why sin actually exists in human life. Psychology and social science furnish valuable insight here. What are the actual facts concerning heredity? Is moral delinquency due primarily to what we inherit? Or is it due largely to the social environment and to the education which the individual receives? In view of the facts established by sociology, can we treat sin entirely in terms of individual conduct and responsibility? How much does an enfeebled body have to do with moral delinquency? How far are overcrowding and undernourishment responsible for low moral standards? If such facts as are suggested by the foregoing questions are considered, how ought a doctrine of sin to be formulated? No theological student has any right to ignore the imperative necessity for a radical reconstruction of the doctrine of sin in the light of modern knowledge. When once the facts are clearly seen, the student will discover that, instead of minimizing the emphasis of Christianity on sin, 
he must face a terribly complex and powerful realm of evil which holds men in wrongdoing. Every individual is bound by physical and by social conditions to realities which thwart his moral purposes. Poor eyesight or adenoids may so exclude a child from normal conditions of activity as to induce hopelessness and passionate attempts to find relief through lawlessness or trickery. Employees may be compelled by industrial conditions to do dishonest work, knowing that it is dishonest. Even the church member may be deriving his income from the proceeds of iniquity, if he is ignorant as to the exact nature of his investments. A man who honestly desires to be a disciple of Jesus finds the hindrances to discipleship to be so many and so serious that the need for salvation is keenly felt. The frank recognition of these real foes of the good life brings a much more convincing knowledge of the sinful life than is the attempt to trace our ills to an inheritance from Adam. The realization of the facts which everyone ought to know is sufficient to produce an earnest longing for deliverance. The Interpretation of Salvation in Terms of Supernaturalism The spiritual deliverance which a man finds through religious experience is so wonderful when contrasted with the evils which weigh us down that it has very generally been interpreted in terms of a supernatural change. The Catholic regards the sacraments as the miraculous means of saving man. Protestantism has emphasized trust in a supernaturally revealed Word of God, and in evangelistic circles has insisted upon a crisis in experience so unusual as to demand a supernatural explanation. The student should be on his guard, lest a discussion of supernaturalism be thrust into the foreground and distract attention from the facts of the religious life. It often happens that men who have come to question the adequacy of supernaturalistic interpretations have been led to doubt the possibility of a vital religious experience of salvation. It is important to recognize that supernaturalism is only one way of explaining the facts. The Conception of Religious Experience as a Natural Development Today we are coming more and more to think of religion as a normal and natural experience. Those who confuse experience with this doctrinal interpretation are greatly perplexed by this tendency, for it seems like abandoning fundamental realities of Christianity. But the history of religion has made us aware that, so far as the supernaturalistic details of a doctrine of salvation are concerned, these appear in various forms in pagan religions as well as in Christianity. Sacrifices to appease the deity incarnations to bring the deity to help mankind, the suffering of a savior God to bring redemption, sacraments with regenerating power, and mystical exaltation to a sense of oneness with God, these may all be found in non-Christian religions. The distinctive qualities of Christian salvation must be looked for in the kind of moral and religious character produced by Christian faith. Now, the kind of character which we call Christian may be developed in an entirely natural way. A child may grow up in a Christian family and never know a time when he was not trying to appreciate and appropriate the Christian life to the best of his ability. In such a case, one is more conscious of the spiritual influence of Christian people today than he is of supernatural interventions. Religious Life More Important Than Doctrine It is to be feared that more attention is usually paid to the formal doctrines of salvation than to the realities of the religious life. For a vital understanding of the religious life, Augustine's confessions are far more important than his anti-Pelagian theology. Luther's sermons and his table talk reveal evangelical religion better than the later Protestant formulations of the doctrine of justification. 
Anselm's doctrine of satisfaction is really an utterance of speculative apologetics, inspired by current political ideas, rather than an interpretation of religious experience. Let the student learn to seek direct testimonies of the saving power of God. Let him remember that to begin with an elaboration of a doctrine of atonement, or of regeneration, before one has undertaken to appreciate the facts of our religious life, means to spend time in barren scholastic discussions. The Need of a Revised Theological Vocabulary It is characteristic of our day that men are seeking to get rid of the scholasticism which inevitably accompanies a mere deductive method in theology. We are attempting to define salvation in terms of inner spiritual attainments rather than in relation to some external transaction. The life of Jesus becomes the standard by which we estimate both the need of salvation and the power of Jesus to save men. But the inertia of theological thinking tends to conserve terms which have had a vital significance in relation to realities of former days, but which are artificial in our own day. To insist upon a doctrine of bloody sacrifice in an age which has completely abandoned such sacrifices in actual life serves no purpose save to confuse men. To describe the work of Christ by the traditional titles of prophet, priest, and king involves the use of terms which have largely ceased to function in actual life today. The Reachlian theology furnishes an especially good illustration of the laborious explanations and reinterpretations which are necessary if one employs terms belonging to an outgrown culture to interpret the meaning of Jesus in relation to a different culture. The student of theology should recognize the danger of artificiality which lurks in the use of outgrown terms. The most suggestive expositions of the doctrine of salvation today are adopting conceptions which are significant in our modern life. The so-called moral influence, or vital theories of the atonement, represent attempts to find analogies in our best spiritual life which may serve to interpret our relation to Jesus. We are coming more and more to adopt the empirical attitude which cares more for facts than for labels. The student should constantly ask himself such questions as the following. Just what are the evils from which we need to be saved? Is terror at the wrath of God the most real evil of which we are conscious? If not, are we interpreting religious experience adequately by a doctrine of salvation which presupposes that the work of Christ was primarily to satisfy God? Are not the transformation of human ideals and the stimulation of new spiritual power primary ends? What about the social and industrial circumstances which are responsible for so much sin and misery in our modern world? Are we setting forth a doctrine of salvation which includes the way of release from these evils? If one has felt the blighting consequences of modern materialistic philosophy, can his salvation be expressed in a doctrine formulated before men were aware of the immensity and the uniformity of our universe? Have we done justice to the inner life of Jesus, with its spiritual victory over the demoralizing forces which everywhere assail humanity? Ought not this, as well as his crucifixion, to receive adequate interpretation? The persistent endeavor to meet the facts of our actual experience and to judge the efficacy of any theory of salvation in the light of those facts will go far to save one from formalism and from the undesirable habit of mere rhetorical adaptation of familiar phrases to changed conditions. There is a great constructive task in this field of doctrine which has not yet been adequately undertaken. The Relation Between the Conception of Salvation and the Doctrine of the Person of Christ The historical method of interpretation reveals to us the close relation between the religious ideals of an age and the significance which it assigns to Christ. 
Christian faith has always attempted to discover in the character of Jesus precisely those qualities which are necessary for the salvation of men. The early Christians, looking for salvation in terms of the advent of the Messianic kingdom, found the primary significance of Jesus in his Messiahship. The Christians of the Nicene period, conceiving salvation to consist in the transformation of corruptible human nature by divine power, declared that the important thing about Christ was his divine nature. Medieval doctrine and early Protestant theology, dominated by forensic ideas, set forth the work of Christ in concepts taken from current penology. Our own age, interested as it is in the education and the inner maturity of the spirit, is calling attention to the spiritual resources of the inner life of Jesus. In order to study intelligently the doctrine of the person and work of Jesus Christ, one must take into account the practical interests of religion which make men eager to discover in Jesus precisely the qualities which they are conscious of needing for deliverance from evil. The Necessity for Eliminating Some A Priori Considerations The problem of interpreting the significance of Jesus for Christian faith is complicated because of certain apologetic interests. Since the older appeal to the Bible as an absolute revelation has been modified, theologians have generally transferred to Christ the emphasis on absoluteness which formerly was put upon the Bible. Just as the a priori belief in the infallibility of Scripture leads to the strong desire to find in the Bible that which one believes to be absolutely true, regardless of historical considerations, so the apologetic purpose of declaring Christ to be the absolute and final revelation leads men to feel that they ought to find in his character precisely those traits which modern men believe to be essential in an ideal person. The student must take especial care to test and verify Christological statements just because of the strong apologetic interest in the formulation of the doctrine. It is not necessary to trace every valuable element of Christianity back to Jesus. What are the historical facts concerning Jesus? Manifestly an accurate statement of the character of Jesus must rest on a knowledge of the historical facts concerning him. But at this point students are just now compelled to face a serious difficulty. At present, Historical criticism of the sources of our information is at a stage of investigation where the inadequacy of former interpretations is clearly seen, but great uncertainty exists as to many important historical details. We are compelled to acknowledge that in the existing state of historical criticism we simply do not know many things which we should like to know. The synoptic gospels represent beliefs which had been shaped by the theological questionings of thirty or forty years. The New Testament writers were primarily concerned to use the traditions regarding Jesus in such a way as to derive satisfactory answers to the religious problems which confronted them. Powerful selective theological influences thus determined the content of the gospel narratives. Can we, with any degree of certainty, press back of the definitely conditioned beliefs of the early Christians so as to obtain satisfactory answers to the questions which we moderns want to ask? The distinction between the historical question and the theological question. The student is likely to approach the problem of formulating a Christology with the presupposition that if the exact teachings of the New Testament concerning Jesus can be ascertained, all that a modern theologian has to do is to expound these teachings in the form of a connected and logical doctrine. But historical criticism shows us that the New Testament writings are themselves the products of theological interests. They reflect the religious ideals of the first century. Later forms of Christology reflected later ideals, and our Christology will inevitably embody our own ideals. 
Now, since the task of modern theology is admittedly to interpret the realities of our experience in the light of all that history and criticism can furnish, the student of theology need not feel completely discouraged, because he must leave many historical questions so largely unsolved. The task for theology is simply to use all means at our disposal to appreciate the significance of Jesus for men of today. Our peculiar religious interests will lead us to discern elements in the reported deeds and words of Jesus which were largely overlooked by men of former days. For example, the early Christians were not at all interested in the private life of Jesus. They selected and treasured in their doctrine those traits which enabled them to believe him to be the Messiah who would soon come on the clouds in glory. But time has proved that eschatological expectation to have been mistaken. We are no longer looking for the cure of our social evils by miraculous catastrophe. Our theology will therefore properly disregard the millenarian elements of the early Christian faith. On the other hand, we are eager to find a religious dynamic which shall enable men confidently and steadily to work together with God for the gradual reconstruction of our social order. Hence we properly ask whether the life of Jesus may not yield inspiration here. It is the task of a modern Christology to relate Jesus to this modern religious interest, as former Christologies have related their statements concerning Jesus to the exigencies of the religious life of their own times. The Changed Interpretation of Jesus Since the millenarian solution of social ills involved the belief that miraculous intervention is God's way of saving the world, it was natural that the character and the work of Jesus should be interpreted in terms of miracle. But if we have come to think of God's purpose as something which is slowly wrought out with the cooperation of men, we cannot do justice to our belief in Jesus by interpreting his character in terms of a supernaturalism which separates him from humanity. If God is to be found in the age-long purpose of righteousness, steadily working through the processes of cosmic and human evolution, our doctrine of Christ will lay stress on the same activities and attributes which we affirm of God. This means that to withdraw Jesus from the natural order would be to leave him unrelated to the realm in which we find God working. If our faith affirms God in the world, faith will also discover the divinity of Jesus in the world rather than in some otherworldly origin. Consequently, we find today a growing appreciation of the life of Jesus in this world and a lessening emphasis on such matters as the virgin birth or the supernatural nature, which find their meaning only in a conception of religion which defines God primarily in terms of transcendence. The Need of a Positive Understanding of the New Interest The student is likely to be distracted in his study of Christology by the polemic treatment of the subject which is still prevalent. Any departure from the Christology authorized in the creeds of the Church is felt to be a betrayal of the faith. The student should realize that we today are engaged in a creative epoch of religious thinking no less significant than the age which produced the Nicene Christology. Exactly as men then defined the significance of Jesus in terms which fitted the religious ideals and aspirations of the time, so we today are attempting to relate Jesus positively and vitally to the religious ideals in which our best aspirations find expression. If the Christians of the first century had the right to employ messianic ideas in their interpretation of the significance of Jesus, if the Nicene Fathers had the right to introduce into their Christology the mystic philosophical ideals of their time, if Luther had the right to relate Christ directly to his fundamental problem of religious assurance, Surely modern Christians are justified in attempting to undertake a constructive task of similar import for our own day. 
the trend of theological thinking during the past century has been in the direction of a new appreciation of the life of Jesus in human history. Theology must do justice to this positive ideal. Any negative criticisms of former Christological statements are only incidental to the great positive motive which inspires modern thinking. Some important questions. Before undertaking to formulate a constructive doctrine of the character of Jesus, one should analyze the familiar terms, asking what significance they have for modern religious experience. What is meant by the deity of Christ? If it is taken in its Nicene sense, just what meaning for religious experience can a divine substance have? What was the relation between the substantial conception of the deity of Christ and the substantial conception of sacramental regeneration which prevailed at the same time? If a modern religious experience does not think of God in terms of substance, is justice done to the significance of Jesus by the use of the term? How are we actually saved by Jesus today? Is it because of his messianic exaltation? Or is it also because, through the power of his life over us, we are enabled to have a triumphant faith? If the latter is the case, do we do justice to the place of Jesus in our faith if we confine ourselves to a doctrinal statement, like the Apostles' Creed, which passes over the life of Jesus in silence, in order to exalt the messianic aspects of his career? Why are we so eager today to understand and appreciate the experience of Jesus? Why do we picture him as facing problems? Why are we beginning to talk about the religion of Jesus? Did the older Christological conceptions really leave room for a genuine religious experience of Jesus? Such are some of the questions which must be asked before fruitful constructive work is possible. The Definition of Jesus in Relation to Religious Experience Theologically, the content of Christology is to be found by asking two questions. From what do men need to be saved? And, how is Jesus related to man's salvation? If the source of our sin is located in a non-psychological nature which we inherit, we shall, of course, interpret the work of Christ in terms of his natures, divine and human. But if we think of sin concretely and refer it to its psychological causes, we shall interpret salvation in terms of conscious experience. We shall then not ask concerning the nature of Jesus, but rather concerning his religious consciousness and life. We shall emphasize his God-consciousness and his ability to create in his disciples a trust in God which gives spiritual insight and moral power. As Schleiermacher declared, the important thing about Jesus is his God-consciousness. A modern Christology will seek to make clear the religious significance of this God-consciousness in relation to the specific needs of modern life. The terms employed by the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds, admirably suited as they were to the religious thinking of their age, are not adequate to express this modern interest. Hence we are now in the process of working out a new vocabulary with which to express the significance of the character and the work of Jesus as enthusiastically and as vitally for our age as the ecumenical creeds expressed it for a different age. There is no more fruitful field for study than this realm of the creative construction of a new appreciation of Jesus. The Christian Life the deductive method followed by the older theology placed the doctrine of God and the plan of salvation first and made the experience of the Christian a logical consequence of the dogmas of salvation. The inductive method requires one first to examine religious experience in order to discover the data for theological thinking. The significant aspects of Christian experience will therefore already have been considered by the student in connection with other doctrines. 
However, it is necessary to give an interpretation which shall gather up the implications of one's theological thinking and set the activities of life in relation to a vital faith. It is here that the fundamental difference is to be found between a purely scientific study of experience and its religious interpretation by the preacher. The scientist is not concerned to discuss the reality of the existence of God. He is concerned only with the idea of God and its psychological significance. The preacher, on the contrary, must make men feel the reality of the communion of the soul with God. He must therefore set forth religious experience not as mere psychology, but as theology. Religion must be seen to be not only a human experiment, but also a real communion of man with God. The Religion of the Spirit the theological vocabulary which we have inherited suggests a somewhat formal aspect of Christian living. Such terms as regeneration, conversion, sanctification, and the like have been the watchwords of so many theological controversies that they have come to be associated with narrowly dogmatic conceptions of the Christian life. Moreover, so eager have the disputants been to establish the correctness of certain views that arbitrary lines of chronological succession— of stages of salvation, or of relationship to certain beliefs or ordinances, have been laid down. In recent times, preachers and theologians have been learning to observe the actual facts of religious experience. Thus we now have many expositions of the Christian life which ignore the technical theological disputes of former days, and which seek to give vital interpretation to life itself. In order to give full religious significance to the Christian life, it should be theologically viewed as the work of the divine spirit in the heart of man. In the place of the older Ordo Salutis, with its formal discussions of the mechanics of salvation, we should do well to put a vital discussion of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is interesting to see how this doctrine has been neglected by both Catholic and Protestant theologians. Catholics find in the Church the needed religious guidance. Protestants have been inclined to place primary stress on the work of Christ, and the plan of salvation. Modern religious sentiment is coming to demand an interpretation which shall do justice to the imminent divine factors of our experience of God and salvation. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is coming into greater prominence because of this demand. The student should realize that here is a possible doctrinal development which will do much to offset the sense of loss occasioned by the disappearance of the method of appeal to authority. If men can be assured of the vital presence of God in modern life, if the religion of the Spirit can be confidently proclaimed, the disappearance of book religion will not cause serious concern. Every preacher should study some of the religious movements of our day which exalt this conception of a present power of God. The thousands who are reading such books as Trine's In Tune with the Infinite, or who are uplifted by the somewhat pantheistic conceptions of Christian science, witness to the power of a religious interpretation which makes life seem constantly interrelated with God. Popular evangelistic religion owes its success to precisely this vivid portrayal of divine power near at hand and easily available. Liberal religion is sure to be a failure if it does not emphasize the conception of God as immediately accessible. Nowhere is there greater need of careful study and reflection than at this point. Here, as always, the student should let his theological thinking rest on a first-hand acquaintance with real religious experience. The testimonies and biographies of great religious spirits should be read. One should know what regeneration is, not merely in terms of formal doctrine, but as it finds expression in the lives of those who have been transformed by the grace of God. 
such experiences as those narrated in Harold Begbie's Twice-Born Men should be carefully examined, for here we see the dramatic possibilities of Christian faith. But one should also become familiar with the deep experiences of those who have had no dramatic crises. The utterances of Phillips Brooks are surely as important and as significant as those of a converted drunkard. The modern minister should be able to show the work of the Divine Spirit in the influences of Christian parents as truly as in the appeals of a professional evangelist. Indeed, in view of the fact that striking conversions are dramatically impressive, and hence are likely to be viewed as the most important evidences of the work of the Spirit, we ought to take especial pains to show the religious significance of the more normal processes of growth into a confident and strong sense of the presence of God. Some Important Questions It is essential to realize that modern conditions of thinking have altered certain aspects of Christian experience. Some of these changes are of considerable significance and ought to find expression in theology. For example, early Protestantism made much of the doctrine of assurance. To Luther, any sort of uncertainty was spiritual torture. Salvation meant that one could, without shadow of doubt, declare and know himself to be justified and approved by God. The influence of this early Protestant conception frequently leads to deep perplexity today. One who is acquainted with critical scholarship cannot assure himself by the considerations which satisfied Luther. What, then? To reproduce the more naive type of certainty is impossible. Is one, therefore, less of a Christian? We need here to consider that we do not demand absolute, unchangeable affirmations in other realms. We find abundant room for positive living on the basis of a tentative and growing knowledge. In religion, we need to incorporate this attitude into the Christian life. To be growing toward a better acquaintance with God, rather than to be dogmatically certain of complete salvation, is an attitude increasingly common today. The religious value of this attitude should be positively appreciated. Faith that one will find in the future ever richer and more satisfying practical experience of God's presence may take the place of the older certainty which affirmed an absolute assurance from the first. If one takes this more experimental attitude, many of the older questions disappear. The doctrine of instantaneous sanctification and the questions concerning perseverance or falling from grace cease to have meaning. When the Christian life is thought of in terms of a development, rather than in terms of an abrupt structural change, the older absolutes cease to be matters of practical concern. The modern form of the doctrine will be expressed in the conception of a growing experience of God. With the changed conception of the Christian life comes a new conception of prayer. Christianity means the growing experience of a social relationship with God, but the very means by which this social relationship is established is prayer. The answers to prayer are not to be looked for in detached incidents, but rather in the total outcome in one's religious social experience. There is much need of readjustment of popular thinking on this point. When religion is conceived as a never-ceasing quest for the largest possible communion of the human spirit with the spiritual forces of the world in which we live, prayer will be seen to be the primary and indispensable activity which establishes spiritual relationships. When considered in the light of this function in the total religious life, it assumes larger significance than men have been wont to recognize. It is evident to every careful observer that there is being developed in our day a new type of Christian experience. There is danger lest we fail to realize the full power of this type if we seek to force it to utter itself in the vocabulary of a former age. To appreciate and to give positive interpretation to our religious experience, which is essentially a quest for God, 
yielding a growing experience of communion rather than a dogmatic assertion of a finished redemption, is a task worthy of the best efforts of theological students and preachers. The Christian Hope In no realm are the changes of thinking more marked than in the portion of theology which deals with the future life. Where theologians used to speak to us in detail concerning last things, they now set forth in somewhat general terms the reasonable basis for optimistic confidence in the continuance of life beyond physical death. Reasons for a Changed Interpretation The reasons for this change of emphasis are obvious. Modern biology and psychology have compelled the recognition of the close interrelation between our spiritual and our physical life. When the physical organism is in any way modified or ceases to function, the character of the spiritual life is affected. The belief in the resurrection of the body, which used to enable men to think of the life beyond in terms of the activities which we know here, has been very generally modified. Yet, when we attempt to think of a life without the bodily functions to which we are accustomed, it is difficult to form a definite picture. Moreover, the modern impossibility of reproducing all details of the hope of early Christianity leads to caution in the formulation of Christian belief. The early Christians looked for a speedy end of this worldly regime and the miraculous establishment of a kingdom of God from which all evildoers should be excluded. But nearly two thousand years have passed, and this hope is still unfulfilled. Shall we cling to it in spite of all the evidence? Or shall we recognize that this particular form of hope is not in accord with what we know of God's dealings with men? The New Testament eschatology, however, is so closely bound up with the New Testament belief in resurrection that we cannot discredit the one without its affecting the other. The Real Meaning of the Primitive Christian Eschatology Modern preaching often fails to do justice to the early belief in the kingdom of God. We need to recall that for the primitive church it meant the establishment of a righteous social order on this earth. Originally it was expected that all followers of Jesus would live until he returned. It was only when death overtook some that the question of the resurrection was discussed. To the query as to whether those who had died were to lose their rights in the kingdom, the answer was given that the dead should have their bodies restored to them at the time of the great consummation, so that they might participate in the joys of the kingdom. As time went on, and the expected catastrophe did not take place, Christianity gradually developed the idea of heaven, with which we are familiar, and abandoned the social hope of the early Christians. Modern Developments Today we are ceasing to place so much emphasis on the medieval conception of heaven, but we are beginning to emphasize the social hope, which was so important in the thinking of early Christians. In the social gospel of today we are recovering an aspect of the primitive gospel which has been largely forgotten. Thus the lessened emphasis on details of the heavenly life is accompanied by a great revival of the social hope. This positive aspect of the modern situation should be appreciated. The religion of the spirit will lay much stress on the possible elimination of evil from our earthly life through the strength of Christian faith and activity. When we remember that the religion of the prophets of Israel was developed in relation to a social and political hope, rather than in relation to the problem of personal immortality, we may see that there are as yet unrealized possibilities in this aspect of Christian thinking. The Larger Hope but death is so universal a fact that no one can escape the necessity of thinking concerning it. It is important here to recognize that negative dogmatism is scientifically as unjustified as is positive dogmatism. 
if it be true that the exigencies of modern scientific thinking make it difficult to affirm the concrete details of the older resurrection faith, we are not therefore compelled to draw the worst possible conclusions from our inability to prove anything tangible. It is quite as reasonable to believe that death may lead to something better than we hope for, as it is to fear that it may lead to something worse. Christian faith has here to draw the legitimate inferences from its doctrine of divine providence. We may trust God for the sequel to death, as we trust Him for the present life. From this point of view, the various theories of men concerning the future are symbolic of the trustworthy instincts of the soul. We have a right to construct the best possible picture of the future, recognizing that in doing so we are simply continuing the spiritual interpretations which find expression in other aspects of Christian faith. End of chapter 9, part 3